Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. All right, if you would like to find your seats for me, please, we're begin. We are now in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. So if you have a Bible, you can open to that, or there might be a Bible next to you. Feel free to open that as well. And in your worship guide, or at the, in the back of your worship guide, if you flip it over, there is a place there where you can take notes. And I just want to encourage you, jot some things down. I'll be uh, throwing out different references, and maybe you would want to look at those later. Um, throughout the week. I think it's important, especially as we are uh, giving or preaching the Word of God, oftentimes um, we, we don't want it just to be a one-time thing on a Sunday morning where we hear God's Word and then that's it, but even throughout the week to be able to go back and engage with God's Word and interact with it and hear from Him throughout the week. So I'll just in, encourage you to, to jot some of these uh, notes or references uh, that, that come up throughout this message. So it's good um, to, to be with you and to gather like this. Uh, before we get into the passage, though, and read it, let me give you a little bit of review of where we've been, give a, a little bit of context, which I think is rather important because... Matthew, how he constructs his gospel, there's a method to his madness. There's a reason why he goes from one story to another and, and includes some things about Jesus and what he teaches and some things that he excludes. So it's important to kind of look through some of these themes and try to figure out where Matthew is going in this gospel. So we start with Peter's confession, which was way back in uh, several chapters back. Peter gives his, his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And a lot of them say, well, this prophet or that prophet. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And it was after that time that Jesus begins to show the disciples how, how he must go to Jerusalem, get arrested, die, and rise again. And so from that time, there's a, there's a change that takes place. There's a, a movement, a different movement within the music or within the rhythm that's taking place from that time forward since Peter's confession. And if you continue on, as he is uh, making his way, one of these things is he's making his way towards Jerusalem now. And as he's moving towards or traveling towards Jerusalem, he's, all, he's continuing his ministry of preaching the gospel and also healing and casting out demons among the crowd. And crowds are continuing to follow after him. And it's during this time that he begins to be questioned 
um, by various sorts of people. At one time, Jesus is asked by his disciples, and this is really important for us to mark down, in chapter 18, they ask him, who's the greatest among the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? And that's when Jesus brings a child in front of him and says, in order to be great in the kingdom, you must be like this child. And this, it's, a, it's a childlike faith, reliance on the Lord like a child would rely on his parents. And not too long after that, Jesus begins this long discussion, kind of painting out these two distinct moral frameworks, uh, the worldly moral framework and, and how and the values of the world compared to the values of the kingdom of heaven. And he keeps going back and forth. And if, if you want, remember, there's, um, so it's who's the greatest in the kingdom? And then a uh, wealthy man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do in order to obtain eternal life? And he goes into a teaching of, of what this man thought he needed to do compared to what was really valuable in the kingdom of heaven. He continues on, and remember, he talks about the first will be last, and the last will be first. So what we think is first in this world, no, no, no. In the kingdom, it's, it's last. And what we think is last here is actually first in the kingdom. So, so there's a value change. There's a difference in value when it comes to the world and what we see in this world as valuable and what the kingdom of heaven sees as valuable. So there's two moral frameworks, and, and they clash against one another, and Jesus is pointing this out. And in our text this morning, he's going to point this out again. We're going to see how Jesus points out the value of the kingdom and how the people that he interacts with kind of have a different value system. So we're going to see this clash again. So let me read this for us. I would encourage you to stand with me, if you can stand, um, just in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to start in at verse 7. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant and the two at the two brothers. 
But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Lord, we come before you. This is your word. And I pray that through the spirit, you would speak in such a way that our hearts and minds would be transformed into a greater likeness of Jesus. This is our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, like I said before, I think that there is a method to Matthew's madness in the sense of how he constructs uh, his gospel. And what I want to point out at the very beginning is how this portion of this narrative begins and ends. Because it begins with Jesus talking about his death and resurrection. And at the very end, if you know, he's going to come back to that. He's going to come back to that in, in a particular way. So this is kind of like two bookends. And so it means that there's something in the middle that's taking place, and, and it means something when it comes to his death and resurrection. So let's see if we can draw this out. Here's, here's the main idea. I'm probably going to, I'm just going to um, reveal it, going to pull back the curtain. Here's the main idea of I think what Matthew is trying to inform us of, and that is that service and sacrifice is what makes one great in the kingdom of heaven. Service and sacrifice is what makes one great in the kingdom of heaven. So I broke this passage down into three different scenes. Here's the first scene. Number one, that Jesus predicts his death. Jesus predicts his death. So here we see Jesus still making his way to Jerusalem, and it looks as though they are very close to arriving. And as they are walking along the path, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and again tells them about what will transpire when they reach Jerusalem. He again tells them of his death and resurrection. This is the third and last time he will mention this to the disciples. And I would like to actually, through this, compare all three of these because I think we will see a progression. Jesus, in this last prediction, gives more detail of what this is going to look like. And um, the, the nerdy side of me said, you know what, this would be cool to put in like a little graph. So I kind of made this into a graph. We couldn't transfer onto a slide, but we do have the verse up here. This is chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. I think the manuscript that I'm working out of will be online. Like you can go to um, the Wednesday Gems and it'll be there. You can click on it. And so you can see my cool little graph there if, if you're like me and like graphs. But what I want to do is kind of compare these three predictions. Is it up there? Good. Compare these three predictions. So here's the reference. The first time he predicts his death 
and resurrection is Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. So just jot that down. You can look at it later. But this is kind of how he, he walks through it. It's, it's that he, he says, I will, or he tells his disciples that he will go to Jerusalem, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he will suffer by the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. So that's kind of how he describes it. He says that he will go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the chief priests, he names them out, be killed, and be raised on the third day. That's the first time. The second time, this is chapter 17, verse 22. Again, he says, uh, this time it's different. He doesn't say along the lines of I will, or Matthew doesn't say he will be killed. It's the son of man. So it's Jesus referring to himself as the son of man, that the son of man will be delivered over to the hands of men, by the hands of men, and they will kill him and be raised on the third day. So there's, there's a little bit of difference. Instead of talking about suffering, he's talking about being delivered over to, a handing over of. And, and in the Greek, that language kind of points back to the Old Testament sacrificial system when they would take the, um, the sacrifices and hand it over to the priests. So, so there's this there's a, a picture here, an imagery that's kind of going back to the Old Testament of atonement, this, this handing over of a sacrifice. And so it's to the hands of men, so it's a little bit more general. The first time it was elders, chief priests, right? And here's the same thing, that they will kill him and on the third day be raised again. So it's very similar, now our passage, which is, and you can put that back up, Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 19. It, again, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, that we're going up to Jerusalem, that he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. This is where it gets a little bit different. He gets into a little bit more detail. Condemned to death delivered over to the Gentiles, and now he gets very descriptive. It's not just killed, and it's not just suffer, right? Now he's, now he's painting the picture here. It's mocked, flogged, and crucified, and then raised on the third day. So he's going into greater detail. So it's very interesting here, the detail that he does give, that he will be arrested by the Jewish leaders, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked and flogged, and now killed by crucifixion. And I think these details uh, gives us a little bit more information and, and, get, and tells us something. I think there's some takeaways that we can, that we have because of these details that he's giving. So here's the first one, and that is basically everyone has a hand in Jesus's death. Everyone has a hand. So the categories that he's giving here is the Jews and the Gentiles. That's, that's, that's the two categories of everyone in the world. You're either a Jew 
or a Gentile. They're all involved. They all have a hand in some way in the death of Jesus, in the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, if you go back and if you remember, as we're talking through uh, Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Matthew, I repeated this several times that there's three categories that Matthew keeps bringing up. Categories of people. The disciples. The disciples are the ones that Jesus calls and they drop everything and they follow him. Then there's the crowds. The crowds gather around him because Jesus is doing these miracles and these uh, ministry of healing. And so they're, they're grabbing those who are sick, those who are demon-possessed, and they're chasing down Jesus to be ministered to. And Jesus has compassion on them, and, and, they, and he heals them, and he feeds them, he cares for them. But, but they're coming because they have these great physical needs. And then you have the religious leaders, which uh, it's not too long that after a while they, they say, you know what, we need to take this guy down. They want to destroy Jesus. So you see these three groups of people throughout Jesus's narrative. They keep popping back up throughout. And at the end of the narrative, when, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, you see something transpire where it's these religious leaders, right? The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who arrest them. They hand them over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles hand them over and, and, and uh, Pontius Pilate, okay? Hands them over to Pontius Pilate, who's basically representing the Gentiles, but hands them, at one point, takes them in front of the crowd, right? And it's, who do you want to be released. There's a, there's a uh, criminal named uh, Barnabas, is it Barabbas, Barabbas, that, uh, that's there. Do you, should we release him or this man named Jesus? Release Barabbas. What do you want us to do with Jesus? Crucify him. They start chanting, crucify him. So religious leaders arrest him, hand him over to the Gentiles. And the crowd say, crucify him. And where are the disciples? The disciples have abandoned him. At the, very la- at, at the very end, at Jesus' worst moment, he is alone. There's no one around. There's no one around. So it's very interesting how this sets up and how Jesus is starting to show that everyone, Jews and Gentiles, have a hand in it. We'll see also in the future that the disciples aren't even there as well, that they abandon Jesus. So that's, that's something to kind of to see in these details as Jesus is predicting his death. Here's a second thing that I think we can take away, and that is he gets very specific. It's not that he's going to be killed, but he's going to be crucified. And crucifixion, this was a form of execution that was often reserved for slaves and rebels and criminals and other undesirables. That's the kind of death that Jesus is going to experience. It is a painful and humiliating death. And it's a symbol of shame and powerlessness. 
And you know what? It's very interesting because this kind of death relates to what Jesus has been teaching these past several chapters, right? Those who the kingdom is for. It's for the last. It's for the undesirable, the humble, the lowly. This is the path that Jesus is going to walk. He's going to walk this alone. He's going to pave this path alone. And he's going to take up that position or that role of lowly and the undesirable. So this crucifixion, it's pretty wild that through such a degrading and humiliating death, Jesus would defeat the most powerful force in the world. So in the most degrading and humiliating way, where, where, we see, where, where the world would see this as the most powerless thing that could take place for that person, that's how Jesus is going to defeat the power of sin and death. He will be last in order to be exalted. Last will be first. The humbled will be lifted up. He will die in order to live. These are the things that he's been teaching throughout his gospel, and it's going to take place at the cross. Jesus will live out his kingdom principle as he forges the pathway to his kingdom. And it's soon after this, which is pretty interesting. I, I think this is kind of ironic how this takes place. Here he is talking about his death and how this is a humiliating way to die. And then this takes place. This is where the scene changes. Scene two, where a it's a request for greatness. A request for greatness. So remember, the sons of Zebedee were one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. They left their boats and nets and their father Zebedee, right, behind. They left their father behind and they followed Jesus. They were also with Peter up on the mountain and they witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. So they were part of what we would call the inner circle. Out of the 12 disciples, there were three that, that Jesus kind of focused on and, and he kind of brought them into this inner circle and they experienced things that many of the other disciples did not experience. And so here comes the mother of these two. And let me read this for you. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. All right, so just, let's just pause here and imagine how this may, might have went down. I, I enjoyed doing it this week, just, just imagining how this would go down. And I'm not saying that this is how it went down, but I think it would be kind of funny if this is how it went down. And this is, can you imagine this where the mom comes in, right, and grabs her two sons and starts leading them towards Jesus, and, and the disciples, the other disciples are there too? And I could just imagine, like, they might be teenagers going like, oh, mom, don't do this. Don't embarrass us in front of our friends. Oh, and the mom comes up and says, all right, Jesus, I got this request. Make my sons sit at your right and your left. And the, and the sons are like, oh, 
you probably can't even look at Jesus at this moment and be like, oh, this is just so weird and awkward. Could you imagine it kind of going that way? And, and reading this and be like, oh, my, this, is, this is one of the, the, the helicopter moms, you know? It's like, oof, kind of makes her look bad. And I don't think that's necessarily how it went, though. Because if you look at the text, there's, there's some very, before we pick on her, okay, on the mom, let's, let's look at how this transpires. Let's look at the context, because I think there's something very interesting in how um, Matthew writes this and describes this event that takes place. All right, so first, she comes with her two sons, and she kneels before Jesus. She kneels before him out of respect for him, to honor him. He is her rabbi. He is her teacher. He is her king. She comes before her, him, lowering her, herself to make this request to him. Here's the second thing that, that we can Notice that she believed that Jesus's gospel message, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, she she believed that to be true. Throughout Jesus's ministry, he kept preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm sure she was right along with her sons hearing that message and she believed it. Why? Because she makes this request. When your kingdom comes, would you please make them sit, have them sit at your right and your left? She believed the kingdom was going to come. And here's the other thing. This is the third thing. She knew it was Jesus's kingdom. She knew who Jesus was, that he was the son of David, that he was the rightful heir of the Davidic throne. So she went right to the source. She went to Jesus, bowed before him, and made this request. So we might see this as an audacious request, and it, and it might have been, considering what we just heard, this prediction of his, his, of his death. But in this request, we see a woman with great faith. Woman of great faith. She had faith in Jesus and his word. She believed Jesus was the primus king who was ushering in his father's kingdom, and she was bold enough to make such a request for her sons. This is a mama who loved her sons. So notice now how um, she isn't rebuked for this request either. Instead, Jesus gives a response basically showing that she does not realize what she's asking. Have you ever done this before? where you ask for something that's like, uh, I don't know if you really want to be asking for this. So there's a joke. I remember a a buddy of mine used to say this all the time. And it's this idea of like, there's a a father and a son and and the father is holding this nail and the son's going to hit the, the nail for him to drive it into this piece of wood. And the father goes, and of course, kind of with a Southern accent, you got to paint it in this way. When I nod my head, you hit it. And the son's like, really? Yep, when I nod my head, you hit it. And so when he nods his head, guess what the son does? Hits him on the head with the hammer, right? It's like, hey, you get what you asked for. And this is 
kind of similar in the sense of Jesus is going, listen, you have no idea what you're asking. And it's kind of interesting because here Jesus has been teaching about this throughout his gospels. And if you go back, we, we, we recap this in chapter 18. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? They're asking that question. And he's teaching about the last will be first and the first will be last. There's, there's a whole different value system in the kingdom of heaven. And apparently, mama didn't catch on. She didn't realize what Jesus was talking about. So Jesus says, you have no idea what you are asking. That's verse 22. So this, it's not that this request is a terrible request. It's, it's that she doesn't realize what it will require for her two sons to be exalted into such a lofty and honorable position in the kingdom of heaven. She has no idea what that would require to be lifted up in those positions. So look again at verse 22. This is um, 22b if you want to put that up. Because then he asks this question. So first it's, you do not know what you're asking. And then he says this, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able to drink that cup? It's kind of funny that the, the two brothers, and I can kind of see this too, they're kind of like looking down and they like look at each other and be like, sure, yeah, we can do it. He's like, oh. So what is this cup that he's talking about? It's not literally a cup, right? Are you able to drink this? It's not like he pulls out a cup, you know? Are you able to down this? What's this cup? Well, it's an image of the sacrifice that is required of Jesus. So if you fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knows he's about to be arrested and flogged and beaten and crucified. And so he goes to this garden and he is a little anxious. He's sweating blood that he's so anxious. He gets away from his disciples and he kneels before his father and he says, if it is at all possible, would you take this cup from me? Would you take this from me? What, what has been planned, what needs to happen, if it's possible, can I go a different direction? Of course, he then says, not my will, though, but your will be done. And he continues on the path, right? But what's the cup? It's suffering and sacrifice. This is the path that Jesus is going to take. That's the cup that he is bearing, suffering and sacrifice. So he's like, listen, I don't think you realize what you're asking for. Are you willing, are you able to take this cup of suffering and sacrifice? Of course, the disciples don't really understand, I don't think, what he's saying, and they just say, sure, no problem. Give me the cup. And I think it's kind of interesting how Jesus responds. So this is verse 22. Jesus says to him, or to them, you will drink my cup. And then he goes on to say, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And that's a very interesting way of saying, of, of pointing this out. 
that these positions have already been prepared for, for two people, right? For, for someone. That, that this is something that the Lord is going to do. It's almost as if that these, the, the path that is required for these people to walk will have to be empowered by the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, let's continue on for a moment. And I think this is fascinating how, how this plays out because if, if we fast forward, we kind of know the end of what takes place. We know that the disciples, when he says, will, will you be able to take this cup? Will you be able to ha- take the cup that, I, uh, that, that I'm bearing? And of course, they're saying, yeah. Well, yes and no. Because we know what happens when Jesus is arrested. These guys run. They abandon Jesus. When Jesus walks to the cross, they are nowhere to be seen. They're like, you know what, that cup, never mind. It's only after his death, after they see him resurrected, and after the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon them. Remember, it's at that time that they're locked in this upper room. They're locked in this room. Why? Because they are afraid of getting arrested themselves. They're hiding out, right? They're laying low. But it's after the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon them that they bust out of those doors and with boldness start preaching the gospel of God to such an extent that they too are arrested and flogged and beat and killed. See, at this moment, as Jesus is asking this question, they're not ready. It's only after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them that they're ready to take that cup. All right. So let me give you uh, just a little bit of a background of James and John then, of, of what actually takes transpires, because they do take the cup. And so we know of the story of James, that he is, that he is martyred by the hands of King Herod. He's one of the first martyrs of the disciples. He's killed, he's arrested and killed by Herod with a sword. And tradition says that John, he was supposedly cast into a vat of boiling oil for his face, for the sake of Jesus. Of course, he, he survives this. Somehow he escapes, but then he ends up exiled in, um, to the island of Patmos. So he's the only one that supposedly died of natural causes. All the other disciples are martyred. But John goes through quite a bit of suffering as well. So this scene ends with Matthew exposing the heart of the other 10 disciples. And so after this interaction with uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee and interacting about the cup and if they were able to take this cup of suffering, um, the scene ends with Matthew exposing the heart of the 10 disciples. Matthew mentions this. And remember, Matthew's part of, he's one of them, the disciples. Verse 24 says, and when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. 
Friends, this is, this is huge. Matthew's showing us something that's really important that's transpiring here. The other disciples, they are angry at the two brothers for requesting such high positions. So here's 12 men and only two positions. And it looks like it will be a mad scramble to the top. This is, this is the beginning signs of what power and prestige and places of honor could do to the disciples. The disciples are knocking at the door to play politics within the kingdom of heaven, to, to position themselves in such a way that they may receive these seats of honor. And this is a dangerous game to play. And don't we see it today? Don't we see it in the, in the political world? And don't we see it in the corporate world? Uh, this picture of climbing the ladder and, and it's uh, this vision of climbing over people and stepping on the heads of others to get to the, the higher positions. It's, it's not easy. It's difficult. It's a challenge. And so we see this in, in the disciples. James, uh, and this is a different James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, actually talks about this in his epistle. This is chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He basically expounds on, on the heart issue that's transpiring here. And this is what he says about it. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Friends, this is the condition of our hearts today. And so it's not just looking out at our world and seeing those in the media and, you know, the politics that we see in Washington or or whatnot, or in the corporate world, that it, it's not just out there, but it's here within our own hearts as well. And it's something that we need to identify. It's the condition of our hearts. So let's look at Jesus and how he, he catches this. He, he sees his disciples. He might see the indignation on their faces, or he just knows because he is God he knows what's going on within their hearts. And he has an important message for them. And so he takes them and he pulls them aside. And he's going to set things straight for them. Basically, it's that there's, there's remember, there's a different set of values for the kingdom of heaven. He's going to point out to them the worldly functions, kingdom functions, and the heavenly how the heavenly kingdom functions. So this is scene three. Jesus teaches about true greatness. Verse 25, Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So what does he mean by that? And lording it over or exercising authority, which I think I, I find that phrase funny, exercising authority, which I, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. There's ways in which, for example, parents have to exercise. They have to, 
have authority over their children and they have to use that. So it's, you know, exercise, you know, lifting weights, running, it's exercising authority, doing this. And you're like, okay, that doesn't seem bad, but that's not uh, how Jesus is speaking of this. And it's helpful to kind of look at the original language and how he is describing this and how he mentions it. It's more of this domineering uh, idea or authoritarian. So when he says, lording it over, another way of saying it is domineering. And Luke, this is the only time you, you will see this word, um, at, well, to uh, one other time. So it's domineering or lording it over here. And Peter uses it when he's describing how elders or pastors are to lead the, the, the congregation, lead the sheep. And, it, and it's, um, he says, do not domineer over them, but lead by example. So he's kind of making a contrast by domineering, being this authoritarian. And uh, I think a great example of this, if you think of like, um, maybe like in, in our prison system, in prison guards, and, and how they have to be an authority and um, dominate or domineer over uh, the inmates. Like there's ways where they have to use force. They have to have control. Um, you know, they, they're throwing them in cells. Like, you know, domineering, being that kind of domineering in, uh, in a family setting is probably not a good thing. You know, locking our kids in closets is probably not a good idea. Um, but that's kind of this picture that, that Jesus is painting here. And it makes sense because the Jews are occupied, right? The, the Romans are over them. And so if you think of this as, um, uh, I was watching this movie. It was, a, I think it was a Kong, old Kung Fu movie uh, where uh, I think it was the uh, Chinese were being occupied by the Japanese. And, and this Chinese man is walking down this dirt road, and as the Japanese soldiers are walking down, he gets out of the way. He gets, to, and he just gets, backs up against the wall and lets them pass by, and he won't even look at them because of the, the kind of authority and the domineering that they have. It's like, whoa. And this is the kind of idea I think that Jesus is, is um, getting at here when he's talking about this, where he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And then, and then he says this, verses 26 through 28, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is saying is that the disciples' values are way off. Their hearts are bent towards their own honor and glory. And that's what we often see, again, we often see this in the worldly kingdom that we live. However, the kingdom of heaven runs on a different set of values. So what is the lesson? It's if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you must be a slave. And all this will require 
sacrifice. That's what Jesus is saying. This is exactly what he's been saying starting in chapter 18 all the way up to chapter 20. And if you go back and you read those chapters, you'll see it. What does it mean to be great? Be like a child. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to follow Jesus into glory, you must be willing to give up everything else. You must be willing to sacrifice. And this is what Jesus is about to do. So let's focus in on verse 28. He says this, even as, so he's comparing it to himself, even as, again, calling himself the son of man, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice that he refers to himself again as the son of man and here's the word that is added that is astounding. It's this phrase, and will be a ransom for many. Jesus predicts his death three times. He says he's going to be killed. He says he's going to suffer and be flogged. He says that he's going to be crucified. This is another addition We haven't heard this one yet in those three predictions, but now he's tagging it in here that he's going to be a ransom for many. What in the world does he mean by that? I don't think the disciples knew what he meant at that time. I think it was not until after Jesus' resurrection and after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came that they started to understand what he meant. But this is what I find Rather amazing, and it is later where we read from Paul. Paul, another apostle, apostle to the Gentiles, who who was saved or who uh, Jesus revealed himself way later. This is Paul the Pharisee, who was on the road uh, to persecute Christians, and Jesus reveals himself to this man grabs a hold of this man's life. And I think he understood exactly what Jesus meant here. Okay, he was an an expert in the Old Testament and he understood how Jesus fulfilled the entire law so that he could become, Jesus can become the perfect ransom for the sins of many. So Paul unpacks this concept for us. He unpacks it. Um, I'm jumping down. I'm skipping a little bit here. This is from Philippians chapter 6, or chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. Let me show you how this kind of transpires. Philippians 2, chapter 6 through 11 says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is the kingdom value here of emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and this is where it's very interesting what takes place. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's something that's, that's amazing. Jesus taught the kingdom, of, uh, the kingdom principle of service and sacrifice. He lived it out as he went to the cross so that he might be made right, so we might be made right before the Father. And he became least. He came in last. He gave it all up. And here's the wonderful thing. As he did so, God the Father exalts him. He exalts him. This is the kind of path that we're called to as well. This is the cup that we're called to grab as well, to lift up. It's a call of service and sacrifice. And here's the beautiful thing. As we move towards that path, as we follow Jesus on that path, we too may be exalted and glorified. That's the wonderful gift and the wonderful grace and the wonderful mercy of God. Are we willing to follow? So let me close with these four application questions. I encourage you to jot these down. And, and you can take some time throughout the week to reflect on them. But here's the first question. How do you normally view greatness? If you think of your just everyday life and what you think as great, what you value, what is that? Number two, where do you see ambition as a high value in your culture? Where do you see ambition as a high value in your or our culture? Number three, how can we as Christians in our culture today exemplify service and suffering in a society that values ambition and status? Friends, this is where the rubber hits the road because we are all, many of us are involved in some way. If, you're, if, you're, if you work in companies, if you are an employee, or if you're part of um, just local politics or whatever it may be, it is challenging to maneuver and to walk in those fields as a Christian where the Christian value is to be humble and to lower yourself and to be last where everyone else is trying to get ahead by promoting themselves. So this is really tricky in how to do that. And I think that there's a way to do that, to, to honor the Lord and the kingdom values, but also to interact and engage with these areas in life. But that's something that it's not an easy answer. And it's not just a you know, if you do this, you do this, and you do this, you'll get the outcome that you're looking for. But this is something really to wrestle with. And I think here's the beautiful thing. As we reflect on these types of questions, and we attempt to uh, follow Christ and follow the Spirit and the decisions that we make throughout our day, whether we speak or whether we remain silent, or we, whether we try to lift up others, or there's ways that we have to maybe defend ourselves, all these different decisions that we have to make throughout our days, 
But as we try to do so, following the Holy Spirit, I think the Lord will bless it. And where we humble ourselves, perhaps the Lord will lift us up and exalt us in ways where people, people see the glory of God. All right, so that's, that was number three. Here's number four. I, I hear that alarm, which means it's time to close. It's time to end. I receive that message. Number four, how can we exemplify the call of the suffering servant in our roles and relationships? How can we exemplify the call of the suffering servant in our roles that we have in our lives and in our relationships? Friends, just again, encourage you, take time throughout your week and just engage with the Lord about these things. You can imagine, imagine yourself being there, hearing these requests of, of these two brothers to be put in these great positions and how Jesus flips it on its head. Put yourselves in their shoes. Put yourselves in those situations and, and really hear what Jesus is saying, that he's not just speaking it to his disciples then, but he's speaking it to you. And what does he have to say about it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We want to thank you for your word. It, it applies to or applied back then to what the disciples were dealing with and what the early church was dealing with, but it also applies for us today. So Father, I pray that you would speak, that you would challenge us, and that we would follow after you as suffering servants. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.